0: You're listening to the Classic Gamers Guild Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Classic Gamers Guild Podcast. I'm here with Paul, but enough about us. Okay, on today's show, we have a very special guest who has been making games in one form or another since the 1970s. Creating, programming, heck even voice acting. Our guest resume is wide and prolific. Although to many of us classic gamers he's known as the lead programmer of Conquests of the Longbow and the voice of Cedric the Owl from King's Quest V. May I introduce to you Richard Aronson. Hey Richard, how's it going?
1: It's going well. Um, how are you guys? <laughs>
0: Well, I'm just (laughs) chuffed to have you on here. We've been, well, making memes about one of your characters for such a long time, I feel like I almost know an alternative version of you.
1: (laughs) Cedric was an interesting experience. Uh, (laughs) So I started at Sierra the second week of January in 1991. Uh, The first time that Corey and Lori Cole tried to get my wife and I to moved to Oakhurst and worked for Sierra. Uh, we looked at the amount of the pay cut and the state of the housing market and said we can't afford to leave our jobs for that. And then a year later, many things had happened that made us more amenable to moving. And I came up first because they wanted me on longbow, largely because I'd had uh, 10 years' experience working at the Los Angeles and San Francisco Renaissance fairs. So I spoke the language, um, in period, and I was familiar with a lot of things that would help make the game seem historically accurate. And, mm-hmm. uh, what I didn't realize at the time, although I learned later was, cool. uh, Sierra at that time had fired a lot of programmers for various reasons over the years, uh, with an unbroken record of getting sued and losing. And, <laughs> and I had 10 years experience working for, um Crocker Bank, which was a Fortune 100, and then Lytton Industries Corporate Headquarters, which was another Fortune 100. So I'd been trained in all the management policies that pr- allow you to fire a programmer and not lose the lawsuit, maybe not even Whoa. get sued at all. Oh, man. It, life would have been much easier if they told me this because it took me several months <laughs> to realize that almost nobody on my team of programmers was as good as I'd been told they were. And um, nonetheless, I started at Sierra the second week of January, and before the end of the week had come by, I learned that our game was drastically over-designed on the art side. We only had budget for 900 animation loops, and no one was actually counting the animation loops called for by the storyboard. So, of course, as a programmer who'd been working in worldwide email before there was an internet and mm-hmm. business applications, I knew nothing about canning, counting animation loops, but I had to. So I started doing that. And it turned out we were calling for about 1,450 animation loops, which meant we weren't going to ship this year.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: that was, that was an issue. And while that was going on, um, One day, Roberta Williams walked into my cubicle, or sort of cubicle, and said, Hi, I'm Roberta Williams, and we hear that you're an actor. And I said, Well, yeah, I've done a lot of acting. And uh, she said, We've tried auditioning everybody in Oakhurst, everyone at the company, and every actor in Fresno for the role of Cedric, and without success, and if we go to Hollywood to hire a truly, uh, professional actor, there's a real good chance that we'll have to record all our voices with Hollywood actors. And I don't think we have the time or the budget to do all that. So I'd like you to read for Cedric. And I said, okay, um, uh, describe Cedric to me, please. <laughs> so she said, Cedric is an extremely smart five year old boy who isn't always right, but he thinks he's always right, okay? (laughs) Yep. And he's an owl. And I said, uh, you know that uh, the BBC and their uh, world-famous Radiophonics Lab has just released uh, one of the chronicles of Narnia with talking owls that had hundreds of thousands of dollars of technology behind them, and you expect me to compete with my voice? And she said, yes, please.
0: <laughs> absolutely. Okay.
1: So um, I gave her some samples, and we worked on it for uh, about an hour and a half, and she gave me really good feedback. She She knew absolutely everything about why she wanted Cedric in the game and what Cedric's role was to be. And as a voice actor, I have never had a better director. I'm sorry. She was terrific. Um,
0: Oh, I love it. Even
1: though I didn't like doing Cedric because, uh, so I I combined Cedric with a faint English accent because I'm good at it and I was working on Longbow anyway. Uh, But it seems to me that if you're hitting an American audience and you stick a faint English accent on anything magical, it works. You know? (laughs) And Yeah, that's for true.
0: <laughs> totally.
1: And so I, I gave gave a, a mild English accent. I had to do it all in falsetto. And um And I I normally sing second bass. I am not a, a soprano. Mm-hmm. But that was it. And she said, How much can you give us? And I said, How much do you need? And then I got to see the script, which was uh The third or f- <laughs> third or fourth biggest part in King's Quest V by the number of lines. Oh,
2: and, for sure. And
1: I realized, because I wound up counting all the lines on every script, because I'm that kind of numbers guy, and mm-hmm. um, and Cedric was going to eat up a lot of time, and you know I estimated about sixty hours, and I said wow. I c- I can't do Cedric straight through. Um, I will mm-hmm. kill my falsetto. And then the last part of the recordings will, um, will not sound right because my falsetto will be dead. And I said, I can, I can, I think I can give you four hours a day for three weeks instead of a week and a half full time. And, um, I got no pushback on that, which I really appreciated because it did kill my falsetto. And I can tell by listening to the role, Um, what day of the week it was that I was playing Cedric by how solid the falsetto is. Um, The accent was pretty solid, but um, by the end of the week, I needed the weekend to have no more falsetto to let my voice recover. So Mondays were always the best recordings. And so I wound up going into the recording booth, and that's where I met Josh Mandel. And most of our lines were done with both of us in the booth, and we had some fun with it. Uh, Of course, most of the lines were mine, because Josh had already recorded Graham, okay? Um, But Roberta thought it would be good for the spontaneity to have us do the lines over again with us in the same room and let us both respond to each other, and occasionally we were doing things to try and get the other one to break character, you know, things actors do to uh, to have fun, because how often can you say, Ooh, that looks dangerous, Graham, without getting bored to tears? Okay.
0: Oh, that was awesome. Yeah. So
1: the other thing I did, um, when my wife and I had lived in Los Angeles, uh, we belonged to the Animation Society, and I went to... All of their meetings where voice actors were talking and one with, um, um, Bill Scott, who did all the hero voices for, uh, Jay Ward Enterprises, you know, Rocky and Bullwinkle. And, and I did all mm-hmm. of his voices. I, I just did all of them wow. except for Super Chicken mm-hmm. because I didn't realize he was the voice of Super Chicken. And, <laughs> and he described Super Chicken as doing this. And this time when I do Cedric, um, I'll be doing it with the warble, yeah. which is just a matter of grabbing my apple, apple, Adam's apple, and moving it up and down very rapidly. Ooh, Cedric! You know, so that you get an, <laughs> instead of an, ooh, without much vibration, you get an, ooh, and you can tell my yeah. falsetto is already starting to fail. And.
0: That was really good, though. Um,
1: uh, well, back at the time, you know, I was, I was younger and, and hadn't done all of Cedric yet. So that was a technique I stole from an actual voice professional, one of the best known at the time. Uh, June mm-hmm. Foray also spoke at that thing. So she was Rocky and he was Bullwinkle. And he was Dudley Do-Right and she was Nell. And all of the Jay Ward cartoons, you know, he was George of the Jungle. and oh, And he doesn't sound at all like Super Chicken, but Super Chicken was some of the techniques that I used in order to uh, play Cedric and make
0: the transformation happen.
1: Well, it, uh, Cedric Cedric's not a very interesting character to play, <laughs> um, but uh, Roberta had done a great job of explaining exactly why Cedric was in the game and his role in the game. And okay, that makes it a part instead of a boring part. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: right, right.
1: You know, uh, I mean, Cedric accomplishes a lot of things for King's Quest V. Aside from the sidekick role, he gives all the younger players something to, um, empathize with.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and I loved that because I had a six-year-old daughter who loved playing games at that time. So she's older now. And, uh, so, Playing Cedric, I was always playing Cedric for the children that would eventually be playing the game. And I didn't have any problem with that. Um, some of the lines I disliked, if, I, if I'd if i been working at Sierra for more than a week, I would have suggested changing some of the lines because mm-hmm. uh, I'm a pretty funny guy and, and not just funny looking. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm world famous for having written Eric and the Gazebo, probably more famous. totally
0: going to bring that up. <laughs> yes.
1: Well, you know, I and and I wrote a play that we performed at the Renaissance Fair. It was a, a three-actor comedy version of Macbeth. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so jokes and all this stuff. But mm-hmm. I was afraid to do so with Roberta because I did not know at the time just how collaborative Sierra was. I, I didn't feel that I should be making suggestions to the best selling computer game designer in the world on my first computer right. game. You know.
2: <laughs> Fair uh, enough.
1: So, so I chose not to. I don't think I would have made it much better, but I think I might have made it a little bit better. Um, mm-hmm. in all the other voice work I did at Sierra, um, uh, I made suggestions and almost all of them were gratefully accepted. Mm-hmm. You know. So that was, yeah most of my first month at Sierra. (laughs) Half of the time I was doing one thing that I didn't think I was hired for, and the other half I was doing something else that I didn't think I was hired for.
0: What about your work on uh, EcoQuest? Uh, You did some work on that, I guess, shortly after?
1: Yes. Um, I was friendly with Gano. (laughs)
0: EcoQuest?
1: EcoQuest is how we pronounced it at the time. And and it was a children's educational game to... Further good ecological habits. Call it uh, a really early climate change game. And uh, after Cedric, I just put down a pretty hard and fast rule because I didn't have the highest opinion of some of the other voice actors at Sierra. And I knew that any part I really wanted and read for, I'd probably get. And I'd done other voice acting that I thought was more important, and mm-hmm. I wanted to let other people have um their chance in the uh, behind the mic and to a lesser extent, it's also that um I didn't want people to be mad at me because I was stealing the roles that they wanted um
0: mm-hmm.
1: i have I have a very twisted childhood with much bullying, and I just mm-hmm. you know so i didn't want to step in and have people hate me more than they were already going to. Because I was stealing their parts, Mm
0: -hmm, so I
1: told the other people, "I'm not going to read for a part unless you think you absolutely have to have me." Because Mm -hmm. at the time, most of the people actually didn't mind Cedric, and most Mm -hmm. of the most of the CR people. Well, Mm -hmm. okay, Cedric became increasingly annoying over the years because (laughs) every tour that we did. Uh, when the tour hit the sound booth, which was way too large for the tour size, so the tours, the tourists are are stretching out into the hallway, and they always played Cedric because the kids always loved Cedric, and right. and yeah. when you're working across the room on Quest for Glory One VGA and you're hearing Cedric that often, you quickly lose your taste for Cedric. You
2: know, (laughs) says Cedric himself, says Cedric himself. (laughs) And,
1: but at the time they, I think enough people knew that if someone didn't nail Cedric, that we would have to go, go to Hollywood and everyone's voice work stood at risk of being thrown out and it would have blown a budget as well as blown a schedule. And there's profit sharing and you know, everyone knew that someone doing Cedric was good for the company. So, Mm uh, or at least enough people did. And uh, uh, so anyway, Gano asked me to read for the Shaman in EcoQuest. The Shaman has only like four to six lines, but the last lines are the end of the game, the ocean is clean, they have to absolutely fill the player with all the reward and joy that you can. And, and it's a hard role to do. So, I'm discussing it with Gano, and she says we don't we don't really know how to play the shaman and I thought about it for a little while, and I said, "Well, to me, the most joyous of all the English accents is Jamaican <laughs> and yeah. she said, "Yeah, that sounds right and mm-hmm. uh, like I said, I've been studying voice acting since a small child." And I said, I don't really have a Jamaican, but give me an hour or so and I'll come up with one. And, um, I mean, it's just a different British accent. Just because I hadn't done one doesn't mean I didn't have the ear for it. Um, I'm very much auditory sensitive. I've been, um, music director on several games and, uh, voice director on some huge voice games. Uh, the two games based on World Series of Poker. They had up to 9,000 lines in them. And most of the lines were not read by professional actors. They were read by professional poker players who were licensing their likeness and their voice. So, um, I wrote almost all of the lines and I had to edit them and fit them together. And, uh, you know, but I'm really good with sound. I'm an, I'm an auditory. I learned by listening well. So uh so I came up with the shaman and he only has six lines, so he was easy. And since mm-hmm. I'd already, you know, since I thought they were really happy with the shaman, which I, I believe they were, I said, mm-hmm. All right, are there any other roles that you're having trouble with? And they talked well, we're not really thrilled with what we've heard so far for the, the great senator. And I said, Well to me, any crab that's a great senator has to be voiced like uh, uh, Huey Long meets Foghorn Leghorn.
0: Obviously, yeah. And First thing that okay. came to mind.
1: So I, I did that one <laughs> for them as well. But, cool. but it, you know, they asked me. I didn't audition for any of those parts. Mm-hmm. Um, and another one that I was asked to do was Ramsey's Najir.
0: Ah, and Dagger, yeah.
1: He's, he is the toughest voice I did for uh anywhere.
0: Mm, uh, I believe it.
1: Because first of all, he's a meek uh library uh, museum curator by day and then he's an evil cult leader by night. And he's Egyptian, which is a tough accent, and he lisp's. And the angrier he gets, the wow. harder he lisp's. So, we always called him the Lisbon Egyptian. <laughs> <laughs> you know. and,
0: oh, that's great.
1: And uh, I also did Laura's father, but I never got credit for it. Interesting. Really?
0: I didn't know that. He,
1: he only had about six to eight lines. Um, mm-hmm. And he was he's right in my wheelhouse. Okay. Uh, when I was mm-hmm. doing Cedric, the recording engineers, uh, Mark Siebert, and um, Rick Spurgeon, they started calling me One Take Aronson because I'd done this before, and about 80% of my lines I was able to get done in one take. But, mm-hmm. you know, Gary Owens was 100% of his lines, you know. so Oh, man. <laughs> you know, um, and uh, so a voice that is a deep bass voice with a southern accent, that's trivial for me. Okay, that's mm-hmm. no problem. Nothing like Ramsey's. Um, I don't think I got Ramsey's nearly as well as I got um Cedric. But the big thing there, when I was doing Cedric, almost all of the times I had to do a re-record, it was because Roberta thought there was something better in me. You know, very few of the re-records were my idea. Whereas most of the Ramsey's lines, it was my idea that I had a better read in me. Mm-hmm. And and they were willing to accept what I'd given them. So that's and one of the reasons why I, I really liked working with Roberta.
0: So you weren't quite done with Cedric, though. You went back again a few times, once in, in Hoyle's Classic Card Games. I think you did some voice acting there. Gosh, I loved that game.
1: Uh, yes, I was the voice and the body of the gin Rummy guy. Mm-hmm. Um, But... My real job on that project was as the AI, the the AI designer and programmer for Bridge.
0: Oh. And
1: my daughter uh, did some voice acting on that game. She was about eight, and um, and she got paid a hundred dollars, whereas I only got paid ten dollars for my voice work. And it didn't okay. matter how big the part or how many voices I did, you know, it was ten dollars per game. Wow. <laughs> um, which was another reason why I wasn't that interested because I just felt honor bound to make up all my time spent on these other projects, uh, by, by making up the time on my own project for which they had hired me, you know? Right. So, um, yeah, Hoyle Classic was, uh, a very different challenge. Uh, mm-hmm. I had little choice on that. Again, I was voluntold, I'm doing Hoyle Classic. Ken came up to me and said, "Uh, I hear you're a bridge player. And I said, yes, I am a pretty good bridge player, and uh, I'm a certified tournament director, and and Corey and I are playing a bit, and we're now both life masters. And he said, good, you're now the bridge designer on Hoyle Classic, and you'll be working on bridge. And, And I said, Okay, but you know how many other bridge games there are out there? And he said, Yes. Is six months enough? And I said, <laughs> wow. Six months would be enough for the worst bridge game out there. Um, I think I need <laughs> at least a year. And he said, wow. We'll give you nine months. And, um, okay, uh, uh, you know, I. What am I going to do if that's the job he feels that I must do and my wife likes it that I'm working? Of course, mm-hmm. at the time, she was working <laughs> on, on server code at the Sierra Network. So, um, oh, okay. so she had moved up here and our daughter moved up here and all that. So it wound up taking us closer to a year, but most of it was not my fault. Most of it was other people's games. Mm-hmm. And I did fix some things that I think were good, um one can easily be described. If you've ever played Hoyle Bridge, you'll see that we have a very compact bidding, bar- bidding box. And it is laid out with all the numbers from 1 to 7 on one side, and all of the suits, clubs, diamonds, hearts, spades, and then no trump is a suit at Bridge, around the other side. So you have 35 squares. And when you or someone else makes a bid, it makes other bids illegal by the rules of bridge. Okay? You must make a bid that is higher than the the highest previous bid. And every other bridge game in the world at that time had you click on a number like one and then click on the suit like hearts and then click on confirm, and if you find out that one heart is illegal because someone else has bid one no trump, you have to start all over again. That's what I call user hostile. And, um, mm-hmm. whereas with a three by five, with, with the five by seven grid of all the bids, then once the bidding had reached a certain level, you just grade out all the illegal bids. And you don't need yeah. to confirm. And it's one click or one click and confirm, and you make that a game option. Right. And most, but right. not all of the big bridge games today use that. Mm-hmm. So I think that was uh a useful creation. and But there were a lot of features in Hoyle Bridge that really hadn't been done in any computer bridge before, such as the ability to save a hand mm-hmm. and reload it. So you can study it if you had a hand that you thought was interesting. Or email it to a friend that had Hoyle Classic. Or if you studied how... You could figure out how the save hand was worked so you could copy it down on paper. You know, useful things.
0: Mm-hmm. I like that. Right,
2: right. I'm kind of curious, um, as far as just programming at Sierra in general, I, I guess to, to make my question a little more, I don't know, uh, coherent, I'll, I'll, narrow it down to Robinhood where you were the lead programmer. What was, what would a day in your life have been at that point? Um, would you have been, you know, Inputting character dialogue, or is lead programmer kind of above that sort of thing? I'm just curious what the actual programming work was. Well,
1: this goes back to my philosophy as a lead programmer, which I developed at other places. Um, I am extraordinarily good at doing stupid, boring work. And I don't know why... I just look at it as a task that needs to be done, and I know I will do it pretty well. And if the if my team sees that I am taking the most awful, most boring tasks onto myself, they grumble less when I give them another task that isn't that interesting. Mm-hmm. And so, so as a management style, I always took the worst things onto myself in, in every game that I had some kind of supervisory control over what went on in the game. Uh, mm-hmm. So, with Longbow, yes, I took a lot of the stupid tasks, like counting all the animation loops called for by the storyboards. It really should have been done mm-hmm. by the producer or the lead artist. I noticed that neither the producer nor the lead artist made another game at Sierra again after Longbow.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, so I
1: mm-hmm. think my flexibility was helpful uh, a lot of it depends on where we were in the development process uh My first six months at Sierra, the phrase I used most often was, "If we had more design, we could be more we could work more effectively because Christy had taken right. um a Babylon Five contract script and wrote a great script for them, but that was. Right when we needed her to be turning over design to us. So we did as much as we could because I I didn't feel I was hired to design the game. But Mm -hmm. um, just solving the problem of getting art under control, uh, the solution we used was to reuse um, areas or rooms. So instead of uh, going to original locations... Robin Hood went to the Fens more than once and went to Nottingham more than once, and mm-hmm. and, and that kind of thing. And uh, we worked on giving Robin Hood disguises so that he could go back to these places and not be recognized. Hmm. And, right. and um, so there's a lot of work on that. Uh, I spent like three weeks uh, bug-proofing the design uh, once mm-hmm. the design was finalized, and I found a fatal bug. And I'm proud of that because it could have shipped with that fatal bug um, mm-hmm. on day three. Originally, Robin Hood doesn't have to save Maid Marian, and if he doesn't save Maid Marian on day seven, it never ends <laughs> because oh, really? Maid, Sa- Maid Marian was essential <laughs> to further the plot. Okay, so and and it was a relatively easy fix. I think I came up with it, mm-hmm. but Christie was amenable. Um, that uh, when Robin Hood sees Marion cut down, he makes a noise, and then the sheriff's men cut him down too. So the fatal is on day three, not on day seven. And you don't have to go back very far in order to fix it. And I'd heard that a lot of Sierra games had uh, those kinds of fatals, and, um, and we were trying to prevent them from happening, which is why I thought I had to... Play everything in the game to make sure that that there were none of those um start over again fatals that that I could mm-hmm. spot uh so that was that was like three weeks um, there were there were weekly chores you know every week I had to attend the lead programmers meeting um, every week I had to uh discuss that meeting with the others I had to supervise the programmers that weren't doing quite as well as uh I thought they should be. Um, I had a very interesting, very tedious week working on the waterfall. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you remember the waterfall uh, where Robin Hood and Maid Marian are behind it, and you have really nice water, and beautiful. And that was um, Ken Nishaway coming up to me and saying, "I have an idea on how to make actual realistic." appearing water in the game for the first time, um, involving um, a palette that has 192 blues in it. But I don't know how to program it, because we're going to need a lot of changing in the colors in the water. And I said, okay, that sounds like the kind of thing I was hired to solve. Um, I don't consider myself a great programmer, but I am a great problem solver. And mm-hmm. so we spent three weeks um adjusting all of the blues. And Robin Hood and Maid Marion, since they appeared in so many locations, they were in what we called the base palette, 64 colors that were available in every single room of the game. And then mm-hmm. each other room had different 192 colors to mm-hmm. make it um more customizable, look better. So... Um, what we did was created subsets of blues, and I programmed how they would cycle, color cycle, through each of those group of four to eight blues to create change in the background at a pixel-by-pixel pixel basis without mm-hmm. um, without it being obvious that that's what's going on. W- the water is not moving at all. Uh, right. We're just changing... Uh, the the cycles so that it looked like one drop of water was falling by making sure that there was a a color to use and then Ken had to draw them in many different locations but mm-hmm. um I liked it I thought it was beautiful and as a programmer I don't know art you know I I'm, I'm, I'm the anti artist but if if I think something's beautiful it probably is. You know, like, like Coco, the, the Pixar movie Coco, just gorgeous.
2: Um, I've got a quick follow up to, to my previous question about programming at Sierra. I just wanted to ask real quick, you had thrown in there that you went to a lead programmers meeting. And I'm just curious, um, what, what that was for and also what the experience of doing that was like.
1: Well, let me give you a couple of examples of things that were developed, um, during my, during Longbow, because I was not a lead programmer again on a Sierra game. Uh, because that depends a lot on when you finish. Um, and, uh, um, we had four and eight directional, um, walkers. Okay? So, um, okay. four don't look as well. Because, you know, he takes a step and then he skips north or south. Um, eight, eight directional walkers look better. But to make an animation loop, you need two loops for a four-dimensional walker and five directions for an eight-directional walker. So on a game like Longbow, um, only the really major characters got eight-directional walkers. Mm -hmm. Okay? Um, Because they just needed more than twice as much art in order to make Robin Hood walk in any direction and look good and made Marion look good. Um, so, at an early lead programmers meeting, the systems department came to us and said, Okay, we've solved the two, um, the four directional walkers. We agree that it doesn't look good, but we expect to have the eight directional walkers um, finished in a couple of weeks. And so here's where you find the code, and here's how it works, and questions and back and forth, because almost every game at that time was going to be using walkers for, for okay. the, main, the main player character um, that we called Ego, but um, in whatever game he's in, he could be Robin Hood, he could be Graham, whoever. Uh, same with talkers. The games that were going to have voice acting needed talkers. And um, so he met. He told us how the talkers worked. Um, I actually gave gave them a, a lot of good feedback. As I recall, it was Larry Scott at the time who was delivering this stuff to us. But I just spent all this time in the booth actually voice acting. So I had some new ideas for features that would make it superior to the listening audience. You know, but other people had, um, had other ideas as well. And, uh, and that's kind of how the systems group collaborated with the applications group. You know, we, we were game programmers. We made the games. And the systems programmers made the features that allowed us to build the games. So that was a, a major feature of every lead programmers meeting. Uh, we always discussed the status of where we were on the game. We discussed if we had extraneous programmers that didn't have anything to do at that time that might be useful on another team. It took me a while to figure out that when nobody wanted any of my um, not-much-to-do programmers that maybe they weren't as good as I'd been told. Mm-hmm. You know, and, hmm. and mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of them got fired off my team. And uh oh,
0: man.
1: Yeah, I didn't want to get hired as the hatchet man. Um, but if I was being hired as the hatchet man, I'd have liked to (laughs) have been told because I would have managed people differently. You know?
0: Exactly. You know?
1: Um, but I guess they wanted to see how good I was at picking up the fact that I, I didn't have all the best programmers I could have. Um, Mm the, and frankly, the, the, uh, of the core seven programmers on my team, um, I was the only one that was at Sierra a year later. So mm-hmm. um, the best of them, the one that I would have liked to have kept, inherited a lot of money and decided he didn't need to do this anymore. Because there's oh. there's time pressure. you know? it, Of
0: course. Um,
1: there was a study that indicated that if you don't ship a Christmas release game, so that it's on the shelves by the Friday after Thanksgiving, Black Friday, you can expect to take in 25% less gross sales on that game in its first year. And that's a huge amount. And um, so we were all trying to make Christmas if we were Christmas games, and we all felt miserable if we missed Christmas because... That meant that the profit sharing was going to be way down, and it could mean that there were layoffs if the game was uh, really in bad enough shape. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a lot of coordination that has to go on to put a game on the shelf. These days, you buy it from Steam. okay? Right. Totally. Okay? But back then, uh, we had to ship everything three weeks before we wanted it on the shelves, in order for Mm -hmm. it to reach everywhere in the world we were releasing it. So Mm -hmm. it had to be on a ship across to Japan and a ship to Europe, and um, localization was a big thing, and that meant duplication had to happen before them, and if it was voice acted, that meant um, uh, CD burning had to happen. And we had to go to someone that had an expensive CD burning machine at that time. They were not mm. commercially available, um, for cheap. And, uh, go ahead. What a,
0: Now, uh, what about oh, when we, uh, move a bit forward? Did you, I see you did some work on the King's Quest II remake. Is that by chance where you met up with Steven Alexander? Or did you guys know each other before then?
1: Um, I am terrible with names.
0: Oh, uh, <laughs> okay.
1: Um, yeah, infamous so I, quests uh, so I, crew, yeah. <laughs> I may have heard his name, I may have worked with him, but I just didn't remember it. Uh, mm-hmm. What drew me to Steve was we had a lot of friends in common on Facebook, and I'm in dialysis, and he was in dialysis. And as, as I said, I take a methodical approach to everything, so... I've come up with solutions to surviving dialysis with less pain and less boredom and less discomfort. Mm -hmm. And so one day after my wife and I realized that much to our astonishment, we actually have enough money to retire comfortably. So I called him when he was at dialysis one day and I said, and we chatted just to just, it was, it was more a pep talk. You know, we're both in dialysis. We're not alone. We'll get through this together. We'll find new kidneys. And he told me more about his illness and all that stuff. And I told him some of the things I came up with to make dialysis easier for me. And I said, give me your address. I'll mail you a suspendo. What, you might ask, is a suspendo? Um, it's a Spanish <laughs> product that was a Kickstarter that adapts to virtually any phone or tablet. So that And it hangs around your neck with a padded... Uh, thing to protect the back of your neck. So uh, so you can do things with one hand such as watch anything on Netflix when you're in dialysis
0: mm-hmm. or
1: read or mm-hmm. um, face talk or whatever you want to do because you can't do anything with the other hand and that means it's hard to hold the phone.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, The
1: other hand has to stay still or you'll start leaking and when you're leaking, you're, you're bodily fluids thats very unpleasant and it it can really really make shirts and bags and stuff icky so i just sent him one at a time when i thought he really needed someone to step up and do something like that for him because you know he's he's gone through some really rough times and you know 50 bucks i didn't care about 50 bucks uh once we retired my wife and i had a floor limit for each other that we were only allowed to spend 50 dollars Without checking with the other one. Um, and that stood for 30 plus years. And now it's 200. So this was no problem at all. I could afford it. And it did cheer him up and make life somewhat easier for him. And, and as so often happens, once one thing starts lucky starts happening for you, then other lucky things like suddenly you've got a new kidney. So I'm not saying I made that happen, but I'm really glad it happened for him.
0: Oh, that's for sure.
1: You know, um, and and so I consider Facebook when I met him, but part of that is because the computer that I did all the recording for uh, the King's Quest VGA, where I I did uh, I did Cedric, and I did uh, the vampire voice for. For a fan game from account.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Well, again, that's right in my wheelhouse, so it was easy. Mm-hmm. And Cedric didn't have many lines; they were mostly uh, "I'm about to die now, aren't I?" <laughs> kind of thing.
0: <laughs> that's the important stuff now. That's Come right. on.
1: <laughs> but I, you know, part of why I have a public persona is if people want to reach me and ask me to do stuff, then. Mm-hmm. Um most of the people that like Cedric today played Cedric when they were young and if I can restore some nostalgia especially during um, a pandemic and make mm-hmm. people feel better about things by doing a part that I can't do well anymore um, then that's great you know mm-hmm. and you know, if I've been better as a businessman um and then I would have, I would have signed up for every voice Sierra had,
0: mm-hmm.
1: just every single one of them. I would have become Sierra's uh, Mel Blanc, and <laughs> uh, and once it became uh, a reasonably profitable uh, lifestyle with all the voice acting that game game voice actors can do today, and other things. I'd have been doing that instead of, say, making games for the military.
0: Are you retired?
1: Mostly retired. I do some mm-hmm. things every now and then because people ask me and I think I'd be interested in them. Uh, mm-hmm. for example, um, Ken Williams, uh, wrote his, his book, The Sierra Story, uh, recently. It's mm, a very good right. book. And, um, and I heard he was doing it, and I said, before I worked at Sierra, straight out of college, or almost straight out of college, I did a lot of editing and copywriting professionally, and I'd be glad to take a shot at your book because, number one, I was there, so I think I'll, for much of it, I think I'll have a good idea on what you're trying to say. And number two, um, I think you want to look like you're a good writer before you publish, this, publish a book. And he said, okay. And I said, and number three, I don't think you ever did me wrong. And I know there's former Sierra employees that don't think that way, but I have gratitude to you on balance, so I will be glad to donate my time to editing the book for you. And he said, that's very generous of you. And then he sent me a $500 Amazon check, when it was all done anyway. But... um you know, so I got to read the book early and got to make a lot of common grammatical changes. Uh, you know, I mean, Roberta was the writer and she, mm-hmm. and she was already working on her own book and her plans for the game. Um, they were thinking about the game for a while beforehand. So I was happy to do that. And I, um, uh, there's now a fan game called Old Cedric. That I still need to finish my lines for because it's it's hard for me, but I've been voicing old Cedric and Josh voiced old Graham and uh for the game. And uh so that'll be coming out if you are interested in it. Um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
1: and you know, so I'll do things that people ask me to do them. I did a lot of stuff for uh Tierra, uh which I guess change name to something else, but it's a name. If it was a number, I'd remember it. Yeah. (laughs) AGD, yeah. Well, you know, I have a national title at Bridge that I earned with Corey Cole, and that means I'm great at numbers. Names? Uh, So so I'm out there. If people want to hear me, if any parents, uh, and I've had many parents reach out to me because they're scared that their kids want to make games for a living and that they can't possibly survive on that, on that kind of um, dream. And so I talk to the kids, and I make it clear what they need to do to succeed in um, many of the jobs in the game industry, because the only way to get hired as a designer is to already be accomplished as a writer that you know, or be Roberta back in the, you know, seventies.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> right, right. You know. Uh, well I didn't get I didn't get hired as a designer, but um uh Christy had me design all of the Nottingham Street Fair because of all my Renfair experience so I could make it realistic. And uh and then I ran an online game on the Sierra Network uh, with a role-playing system I designed myself, and um, and Chris Williams showed up, and I didn't know it was Chris Williams. I just knew someone named Chris, and that was the first time that uh, Senior Network players ever filled up the conference room to the point where some people couldn't get in. And Chris told Ken, hey, this game was cool. And Mm -hmm. so Ken said, fine, we'll have him go design role-playing games at the Sierra Network because we don't really have anyone over there that knows anything about role-playing games. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, but Sierra demanded you put in more and rewarded you for putting in more. And every time I volunteered to do something at Sierra, um, I think it worked, worked out for me. The first programming I did, because I didn't know SEI, okay? No. Uh, The first programming I did at the first lead programmers meeting I attended, all the lead programmers were grumbling because they'd taken away our our printer. And they couldn't print things that needed to be shared and have them look well on the line printer downstairs. And I've been Mr. Printer. Uh, You know, when there were no laser printers, I programmed the first laser printers and dot mm-hmm. matrix printers, and um, scanning logos so that they could print on emails. You know, I knew everything about printers. So I wrote a little program that taught me the control codes that the printer needed, and then I wrote another program that translated text that we wrote in the word processor we used to code into something that would print cleanly on a page. And mm-hmm. they liked that, and they were appreciative, and they knew that whatever else I was or wasn't, I could write a useful program that solved some of their problems.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I suppose I should have gone into systems programming, but I like making games.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> exactly.
1: You know, um, oh, I, all my last job interviews, uh, all of them for last 15 years, they're asking me why I'm not a producer or executive producer. And I said, I like being a senior designer. There's less red tape, and I get to make games. And I have enough. It's a high enough title that I get to do a lot on the game, and it's a flexible enough title so that I get to do lots of different tasks on it. And um, and I and I enjoy it. And I think we have enough money, and as long as we have enough money, I don't need more money in order to not
2: enjoy work. Before we close out the show, I wanted to ask if you could take a moment to tell people how they could get in touch with you. As, as you said, you've, you've done some, some, you know, I guess you could say mentoring, if you will, and, and just advice giving or, or fan service. So, um, right. you know, if there's anything that you want to plug on top of that, where, where would you send people that are listening? Um, well, I would
1: probably send them to a psychiatrist to ask why they want to get in touch with me. <laughs> uh, that's a problem you really need to solve. Um, uh, <laughs> but I, I was Aronson at SierraTel.com as long, you know, for, for 20 years. And then SierraTel <laughs> changed to STI.net. So I am Aronson at STI.net. And so email is, that's my real email. And that's how, uh, I prefer to be reached, but you can find me on Facebook. Um, I, Tend not to friend people or accept friend requests from people I don't know. But if it is going to improve your life to think that I'm your friend, um, if you ask me to be your friend, put something down about why, you know. Because um, I'm, just, I'm just blanket not accepting uh, friend requests unless there's something about them that reminds me why I should know you because I'm terrible at names and i you know the average human being can only handle about 100 to 150 friends that's just all our brains mm-hmm. can handle and and mm-hmm. i'm trying to juggle you know 250 on facebook and there's others that aren't on facebook and it's very tiring yeah.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> uh,
1: so um so tell me why uh, i don't mind talking about my gaming experience i don't mind giving people, from my perspective, accurate advice on what they really should be studying if they want to get into gaming. And I think there's many fine things to do in gaming, but the simplest advice I would give to everyone these days, make mods. (laughs) Very straightforward. (laughs) A whole lot of games come with the ability to make a mod. And you make a good mod, and that is your secret door to becoming a game designer or at least will get you visible, uh, highly visible to the company that made the game that you're modding, and great, make the mod if it's good. When you apply for a job there, you mention the mod. And if it's not good, you know, everyone thinks they can design a game, and that's why so many uh, lead programmers and lead artists get to design one game. Because they became important enough with their day job that management felt the cheapest way to stop them from doing this is to let them design a game and then keep them on as an employee, but don't ever let them design again unless the game is successful.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: um, and there are many games that I can point to like that that weren't successful and, and, and many designers that designed one game. And that was it. But. I'd rather people design good games. Um, <laughs> I, I love finding a new game that I really enjoy, and then I have a new designer to follow. Because just the same right. way as I read all the books by Steven Erickson, well, I, I play all the games by um, various designers. So make mods. Cool. That's the best way. Um, Stephen King said, until you've written a million words, you're not going to be any good as a writer.
0: Mm-hmm. Well,
1: mods are a good way to get in your first million words. And um, most games do require a lot of writing. You know, I, put, I put a novel or more of writing into all the games that I had a leader, senior designer title on. You know, just a whole lot of writing. You know, the World Series of Poker Games, okay. Almost all of the writing was dialogue, but there's still a storyline and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and all those other things that I wrote and, you know, over the years I've just written whatever I wanted to write. Uh, I've had numerous people tell me, why did you write a novel and never try to sell it? And the answer is, I just wanted to write a novel.
0: <laughs>
1: I didn't really want to try to sell a novel and... And, and they've told me that if we, you know, if I ever uh, get more interested, they do that kind of stuff for a living and I should I should look them up. Um, the last five years of my career, I made um, educational games, training games for Army and Air Force intelligence. And um, when I was teaching at DeVry University, <laughs> I learned that for every game in entertain every job in entertainment gaming like a Sierra online job or an EA job there are seven in training gaming serious games that are designed to teach people how to do stuff and with virtual reality uh boy we can really get accurate in the way we're teaching people so sometimes the best way to transition into gaming Is get a job where there are more jobs, and build up a resume there, and then use that resume to transition into entertainment.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Richard, I want to thank you so, so much for taking your time to come here on the show with us today. It's been really fun. It's it it is not uh, not often that we get to hear you know inside firsthand details of what it was like to work there at that time, and um, just been a fan of your work since since I was literally a child. So I really appreciate you coming on, mate. And, um, everybody listening, don't forget to, we're going to put a, the email down in the description so they can get a hold of you or just say hello to them on Facebook. Um, but otherwise. There's one more thing I'd like to plug. Um,
1: if, and, and it's also an easier way to find my email address if you didn't get it down right. Um, Corey and Laurie Cole's Hero U site, um, has, uh, posted Eric in the Gazebo, which I wrote. In the seventies I improvised it and was told by Lee Gold that I had to write it. And then lots of other people told me, please write that for us because you're actually working with us, not Lee Gold. And uh and make it a little longer because our format requires more words. And now it now I'm world famous. Um uh, so you can find Eric and the Gazebo as I wrote it on their website and my email is on that one. So that's an easy way to find my email.
2: All right, mate. Well, that's all the time we have today, but thank you so much for being here. And to everybody listening, thank you guys so much. We really appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed the show as much as we did. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can in multiple ways, of which you're about to find out. We're a page in a group on Facebook. Find us there at Classic Gamers Guild. Come say hello, join the discussion and lovely community. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at Podcast. You can also find us on Twitter at Podcast. Uh, send us an email if you like, mail at ClassicGamersGuild.com. And a huge thank you to all of our Patreons. We really love and appreciate you guys for helping the show out. It really helps us out a lot. And uh, obviously, you can become a Patreon of of your very own if you like. Um, chuck us a buck over at Patreon or whatever, And to those in our extra special thanks tier, um, that would be Una and Gus, Jean-Francois Paget, I love saying your name mate, uh, Jay Holmes and Mark Fillion, um, huge thank you to you guys, uh, please check out Mark Fillion's game Chinatown Detective Agency which is just beautiful and exciting and it's coming out soon, go wishlist it on Steam please, and that's about it, so don't do a murder.